You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Welcome back, members of the jury, to another Freedom Friday. We are so appreciative of every listener who's decided to tune in and join us in the trenches. Today, we have a unicorn of a story. We are going to hear about an amazing trial outcome in a way that you wouldn't expect and in a way that very rarely happens. And that's such an important feature and characteristic of a criminal defense attorney, and in my opinion, specifically a public defender, is that it Despite the odds against you, whether it be the law, the facts, or just the general outcome of a motion, it doesn't deter you from fighting it, from taking the issue to the box, to standing up against the injustice, regardless of the maybe unlikely outcome of success. It's not always about the outcome, but it can be about the fight and the argument itself. And you're going to learn that in this case, despite the negative stigmas that exist against the the nature of the charges, that's exactly what our guests did. So I'm extremely excited to get into this case and this fantastic trial breakdown. Joining us in the members of the jury trial box today is Deputy Public Defender Mike. Mike, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. What's up, members of the jury? My name is Mike. I'm a deputy public defender. I have been for about two and a half years now. I'm still doing misdemeanors. I started off working in the more downtown area. Then after about a year or so, a year and a half, I went uh, to another city in the same county uh, where where I've been practicing now. And I've done about a half dozen jury trials, most of them post-COVID. Yeah, Mike is definitely the the county's COVID dog, um, getting out all of his his trials in a time where not many were going out, and he's been cranking them out and power to him. And we're fortunate to get to sit down with him to hear about this uh, fantastic case. So, Mike, go ahead and uh, why don't you introduce the charges to the members of the juries and give us a little bit of a factual background as to the case. So this case was a standard DUI, which in California is charged two different ways. There's an A count and a B count. Uh, So it's basically one allegation, but they charge it two different ways. There's one of them that is driving while under the influence, uh, and they would have to prove that your driving wasn't like that of a sober person which is affected by alcohol in your system. And then the second one is a per se legal limit uh, that you were driving at or above a 0.08 blood alcohol content, which they can prove with a blood test or a breathalyzer test, something like that. So that's the charges in this case. But specifically for my client, he was also uh, charged with having a prior DUI within the past 10 years. Uh, The allegation was that in 2012, which was just under... Uh, 10 years from when this case went forward, uh, that he had a prior DUI at that time. 
I hate when the prior allegations fall just within the windows because they can have serious ramifications to a case and the consequences. And, you know, I, I think we all experience it. Any criminal defense attorney who does a DUI, we're faced with the question of, you know, why why are my charged two different ways if if I only did one thing? And, you know, there's various reasons and explanations that people will give you um, from it, it just gives the prosecution kind of two bites at the apple, two different arguments ultimately to earn a conviction. If, you know, maybe one of their arguments isn't as strong as the other, you know, we always tell the clients about the general two defenses to a DUI are no drive or rising and thou. Sometimes those can actually conflict with each other's charges. And and so DUIs can get really uh, technical, scientific and um, deep in the facts. So um, given the nature of the charges, what were, let's say, the what were the background facts that the prosecution would highlight at arraignment uh, during like the bail argument. Right. And so in fitting into your categories and the categories that I tell my clients as well, this was certainly a no drive defense. So this case was a little bit of a mess. It was the morning of April 11th in 2020. So it was two years from the time that the case went forward, uh, the alleged incident and the time of the trial. But what the district attorney thinks happened is that they allege my client was driving his vehicle down the road um, and he ran into a median and some people who were outside at a a veterinary clinic heard the crash and sort of ran over. When they ran over, they saw a man get out of a vehicle and run away. Subsequent, so one of those people called the police and reported essentially a hit and run. About five to 10 minutes after that, there was another 911 call that was about a domestic disturbance. And during that 911 call, uh, my client was in the street. His girlfriend was driving alongside him in her car uh, and they were having an argument. So two sets of officers went out to both scenes, one of them to the vehicle on the side of the road and one of them to the alleged domestic disturbance. And the officer who went to the vehicle ran the plates, heard my client's name or saw my client's name when he ran the plates. And then over his walkie talkie heard that the domestic disturbance about a a block and a half over had that same person's name. So he essentially put two and two together, said, "Okay, this is now, uh, you know, this is the person I'm looking for. So he drove over to the domestic disturbance. And that's when uh, it sort of morphed into a DUI rather than a hit and run, because when this investigating officer approached my client, he was already detained by multiple officers. He was livid. He was yelling, crying. Uh, He came off as though he was very intoxicated. And at that time he began, you know, doing his investigation. I'll note that there were no, there was never any field sobriety tests done Uh, It was basically just the officer believed based on the totality of the circumstances, seeing how my client was behaving, uh, that he assumed that he was under the influence at that time. So it sounds like this was a case that 
you know, factually had a, a legal defense, which is what pushed it moving forward to trial more so than a breakdown in, you know, negotiations. Exactly. From the moment I first spoke to my client, we knew that this was a no drive. And I would note, uh, just as a, as a side, that throughout the course of the case, the offers actually did get better as we approached trial to the point where on the eve of trial, they had offered to drop the prior allegation and let my client plead to what we call a wet reckless, which is a lesser related offense. It still looks like a DUI on your criminal history into the DMV. Essentially, there's some differences, but for someone who's facing mandatory jail time for a, what would be a subsequent, a second time DUI, dropping the prior and pleading to a wet is a a good offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because especially... A lot of the times what I advise is that the the wet and reckless is is obviously the better outcome in the immediate because there's less consequences. But should you get a DUI again within that prior ability window, it, it serves the same purpose in the future. And so you have to take that into high consideration. So, you know, like we indicated, these cases are no easy task, despite the maybe good facts that we think we have. Before you started the trial, though, what what did you think was some of your biggest hurdles that you were going to have to overcome? Well, the fact that it was my client's car, there were two calls within about 10 minutes of each other. My client was found about a block and a half away from his vehicle, his blood alcohol content at the time of his arrest and the blood test was above the legal limit, significantly above the legal limit. And he had, the police booked his keys into evidence. So while he claimed he didn't have his keys, they were found somewhere. And I'll I'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the investigating officer's testimony in this case, but there was a lot of circumstantial evidence connecting my client to being the person who drove the vehicle. There was also an eyewitness who saw someone fitting a similar description to my client running away from the car. But again, that becomes the the hook on the case later on. Interesting. Well, yeah. So so take us to the initial beginnings of the trial. Um, you know, the first phase of a trial is always going to be the in limine motions. Were there any major issues that had to be litigated in this case during that phase? Well, the first thing and and the most important issue for me was I wanted to bifurcate the trial from the prior allegation. Let me interrupt you real quick and just could you take a moment to just give a brief explanation as to what that even means? Right. So the allegation in the case was twofold. It was that my client was driving a motor vehicle under the influence of alcohol and that he had suffered a prior conviction for DUI within the last 10 years. Now he has the right to plead not guilty to both of those allegations. Uh, well, to, to the not guilty to the allegation and to deny the allegation that he has a prior. And it would be the district attorney's burden to prove the elements of the crime as well as the fact that he had a prior conviction. I didn't want any mention of his prior conviction to come in at trial. A lot of times when we have cases like this, there's the, the prior coming in is an end run around what we call a propensity argument, which is telling a, not telling a jury 
that because he did something like this before, he's likely to do it again. Even if you tell a jury not to take it in that way, they're looking at this and they're saying this person has been convicted of driving under the influence before. So why would I believe that he wasn't doing it on this occasion? And it gives the district attorney a much easier road to convincing a jury. So I didn't want any mention of that. So what I asked the judge to do was to separate the trial on the elements of the drinking and driving from whether or not my client had a prior, because that wasn't really an issue. Well, and that's also a really good point to highlight, because not only does it have an adverse effect on the jury members, because absolutely, I think despite the legal arguments that be made that that's not the intention of the evidence, that's the implication that if they did it before they did it again and and the more similar the prior is the more i think that that hones true i mean that's why they even tried to include priors that aren't even similar just to be able to then say look this person is a bad guy or gal therefore it's likely that they did commit another crime and so that's one component for sure but i think the more offensive and, and adversarial part of admitting priors is that generally the only way to even get those admitted is if the client were to testify. And so therefore it weighs very heavily on a client's decision whether or not to testify to the instant story because the moment they elect to do so, they're potentially opening them themselves up to then letting the jury know about specifically the prior conduct that we have been trying so hard to exclude. So the fact that it has that double-edged sword is huge. And so how did that argument ultimately unfold? So the judge did agree to bifurcate the trial. And she also said that there could be no mention of the prior if my client were to testify, unless there was a specific situation where he was going to be impeached with it. And it would really only be if he said something like, I would never drink and drive, or I would never get behind the wheel after having, you know, drank alcohol, then the district attorney would be able to impeach him with the fact that he had a prior conviction. Uh, But she did bifurcate the trial. uh, And we never got there because end result of the case. Interesting. Okay, well, we're excited to see how that unfolds then all the way through the case. Was that the only in limine motion that really uh, got argued? Or were there anything else? There were a couple of other things that I had wanted. Mainly, there was a 911 call that took place a few moments after the initial crash. And there were a lot of evidentiary issues with this 911 call. The person who made the call said that she heard it, said that she saw someone running away, but a lot of her 911 call, first of all, was significantly after. And by Significantly, I mean, probably about five minutes after she uh, saw or heard the crash. And also it was things that other people had told her. She said, the person who was across the street told me that they saw the driver doing this. So it sort of had a double hearsay issue within it that I wanted to exclude the entire call. The judge ended up saying that the 911 call could come in only related to what the 911 caller specifically observed, which was helpful, 
And then we also had one about an eyewitness who said that she had made an, a statement to the district attorney's investigator that she would not be able to identify the driver if she saw the driver again. But then the district attorney had put the witness in the room with my client wait, awaiting trial for about 30 minutes while the case was being called. Uh, and I just wanted to put that on the record that while this person said they would not be able to uh, ID my client, it was very sort of a show up that they were sitting in the same room looking at this person for about 30 minutes before trial. Oh, shit. Yeah. Talk to us more about that, because like that's definitely a, a foul like that. That's not acceptable. Yeah. And it, it ended up being interesting. This this witness ended up being the key to the case, I believe. And so what ha- when I got the statement from this witness, because there were two separate 911 calls, obviously, the one for the for the crash and the one for the domestic disturbance. And I didn't initially get the one from the crash. I got it a couple of weeks before trial, along with a DA investigator's report, which basically said, here is what happened. This is what I saw. And the description of the driver did not exactly match up with the description of my client. Specifically, they said, um, this, and this is in quotes now, Hispanic male, black sweat, with black jacket, long hair down to his chin. Uh, that does not match the description of my client, who is a, a, a you know, quote, Hispanic male, but he had short um, shaved, shaved side of his head and he was wearing a black muscle shirt. Uh, but then she went on to say that I would not be able to identify him if I saw him again. But then on the day of our trial call, she was subpoenaed and was sitting right outside of the trial department while my client was waiting for me to show up again for probably about 20 to 30 minutes. And then when the case was called, you know, my client standing next to me in front of the judge and they said that they didn't need that witness that day. So she was brought in and specifically told you're ordered back on Thursday. You know, it ended up being a few days later. You're ordered back on Thursday while my client who's being accused and she just saw in the hallway for 30 minutes is standing right next to me. Well, I, I don't want to jump ahead too far because I, I'm assuming that it's going to become a role, uh, a break part of the breakdown when, when she testifies. So um, what was the judge's, when you, when you highlighted that, what was the judge's response during the eliminate phase? So she, she basically told me that I could cross-examine the 911 caller on her statement to the DA investigator and then uh, make an argument that, it was the suggestive nature of the criminal process if she was able to identify my client at trial. So there's a a jury instruction that talks about the suggestive nature of in-court identifications. And she said that I could argue that if the witness changed her story and was able to identify my client. And and I'm going to ask that you again, take another moment to help educate hopefully some of the members of the jury uh, who are listening in and explain what is a suggestive identity and why that can be problematic, especially in a criminal case. Well, if you just think about it, the fact that in every criminal case, the district attorney will often have the witnesses identify the defendant, our client in court. So they'll say, did you see who, you know, drove the car in this case? Or did you see who, um, you know, punched that person? And they'll say, yes, I did. And they'll say, do you see that person again here in court today? And they'll say, yes, I do. And then they'll point 
at our client and say, he's sitting right there and he's wearing a blue shirt. So then for the record, they say the witness has identified the client. The very nature of the person being seated at a table that says defendant in court, in a trial is very suggestive. Obviously, you're going to say the person that I remember committing the crime is the person who's accused of committing the crime, even if there are potential eyewitness issues. So it is a very suggestive situation that the only person who you could see who might have been that person is the one sitting at the at the defense table. You know, I know that there's a motion that we are able to utilize to potentially call into identification questions. Was that something that crossed your mind in this case or just given the quick nature of how things were unfolding, there wasn't really time to necessarily prep and, and argue? I hadn't, I, I wasn't going to go down that route because from, because for me, the eyewitness was, uh, was good for me. Because the eyewitness was going to, first of all, say that she couldn't identify him. And second of all, was going to give a a description that didn't match what my client looked like either on the day of the trial or two years earlier. In fact, I used her statement in my opening, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, because it was one of my best facts. Oh, no, I think that's actually a great uh, segue. Uh, and unless there was any other critical motions in Lemonade that you felt the need to discuss. Uh, but otherwise, I think that's a great segue to take us to the opening statements. And, and why don't you start off with the prosecution's opening and, and what they really were harping on to try to set the scene for, for their case. So the district attorney's opening, for lack of a better word, was by the book ABC prosecutor opening. It was you know, the defendant made a choice and they, they always use the word defendant. They never use the, the person's name. Well, yeah, they can't humanize them. Right. Yeah. Why would we want the jury to realize that this is a human being? <laughs> but, you know, and it was that was all it was. The defendant made a choice. He chose to drive. He chose to drive. But and some of the things that I that I'll get into when I get into the witnesses is two of the witnesses in the case were women with whom my client had had a relationship. Uh, his baby's mother and his girlfriend at the time. And one of the things that shocked me was that in her opening, the district attorney said, now you're going to hear from these two women. And to tell you the truth, I don't know what they're going to say. And that just blew my mind. Uh, Not the least of which, because she had statements from both of them close in time to the trial. So she knew exactly what they were going to say. It just wasn't good for her. But it was it was basically just like I said, in in, in ABC, these are the things that you're going to hear. But none of it, none of it was about driving. It was all about my client going to see his baby's mother, my client in an argument with his current girlfriend on the street, my client crying and screaming and yelling in front of the police, very little at all to do with who drove the car and if the car was even driven at all. And it was just, I said to my intern who was helping me on the case before the trial, we need this case to be messy because there's so many moving parts that, and there are some circumstantial evidence that points to my client driving the vehicle, but there's so many things that could have changed that we we needed to highlight all of these discrepancies, all of this messy, all of these messy facts. And I feel as though the district attorney 
started doing that for me in her opening because all she she concentrated on was the messy details. Well, that's definitely got to feel good prior to you starting your opening is that the, the prosecution's theme and theory falls directly into how you're hoping the case goes. So then when you had an opportunity to deliver your opening statement, was there this the opportunity you took to blanketly say that, like, look, you know, she just told you what the case is about and none of it's driving? Or did you keep it more laid back and just plant that seed that, you know, they're not going to be able to meet their burden? I I kind of did the former. I obviously I didn't want to telegraph my entire defense, but I think it was pretty evident from all of the pretrial conferences that it was going to be a no drive defense. But I was trying my best to treat it like a standard DUI as well, because I didn't want to just concentrate on one issue where the district attorney could really hammer down that one issue and I lose. So. I did, you know, I I kind of just went point by point and refuted what the district attorney said. I said, first of all, yes, you're going to hear from these women. And I do know what they're going to say. And neither of them are going to say that they ever saw my client drive. They're never going to, they're going to tell you that they never saw the car move at any point that day. I pointed out, I used the district attorney's own words. I said, my client did make a choice. He made a choice to get someone to give him a ride to his baby's baby mother's house. Why? Well, it doesn't matter why, but that was the choice that he made. And then, of course, I I like to have sort of a theme as well as you know most attorneys do. And mine was tunnel vision, right? That the officer who arrived had tunnel vision. He saw. He knew that it was my client's car. So without even talking to anyone, he had decided that he must have been the one who drove the car. The district attorney had tunnel vision. When she looked at the case or, you know, her entire office, when they looked at the case, they just assumed that he must have driven this car because it was his and that we were only here in trial today because everyone in the system up to that point looked at this case through tunnel vision, but that the client, that the jury was going to look at this with the full field of view. And I was wondering where you were going to potentially go with it being his car and him being in proximity. If, if you were, you know, was his car stolen? Was someone else driving? Um, and so it sounds as like you, you made an argument as to how it could possibly be there without explicitly saying it. Is that what, was that a good takeaway from that? Yes. And additionally, I should also note, and, I'm, and I alluded to this earlier, that I also prepped the jurors to hear the bad idea. They were going to hear from the eyewitness, or at least I thought they were going to, that the person that she saw running away from the car did not look like my client. And it actually, again, one of the places where I was, I, I was fortunate, the district attorney in her opening statement using her PowerPoint had a, a picture the, the mugshot of my client. Now, normally that, that would bug the crap out of me that she's trying to use this picture to dirty him up. But to me, I was able to say, this is what you're going to hear the eyewitness state. And it doesn't look like that guy. It's not that man. And so I was able to, to point that out as well, just to be like, who was driving his car? I don't know, but it wasn't my client. 
Bravo. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you that when they utilize the booking photos, going back to your original point in the opening, that they do whatever they can to dehumanize this person, not take away their name, show them not in their normal state, but after they've probably been roughed up by some officers sitting in a jail cell by themselves, and then who who's going to look great in their booking photo? Um, and so we never want that to come in, but what a... What a strong way to flip the evidence. And and in my opinion, when you're able to do that, that's some of the most effective lawyering that can be done in a case is you you basically take the piece of evidence that they have admitted, that they have produced, that they have articulated as somehow great for them, and then just come in and say, absolutely not. And it's quite actually the opposite. And and that has to carry more weight, in my opinion. I think it just versus... Uh, he said, she said, if you're able to say, in fact, that's not that he said what they've represented, although I, you could see how they could get there without necessarily being disingenuous, but that's just not actually, you know, how that cookie crumbled. So I, I think that sounds like a fantastic roadmap and a opening statements to really highlight to the members of the jury what issues they need to be looking for and how the prosecution is going to struggle to meet their burden. And so let's let's get into that burden. Um, after the opening statements, the prosecution get to start their case in chief. Um, how many witnesses were we looking at them calling? Um, were they pretty lengthy examinations? What's the rundown? So initially, the witness list that I received had seven names on it. And it was the investigating officer, the officer who spoke to my client's girlfriend, my client's girlfriend herself, my client's uh, baby's mother, the 911 caller, the criminalist, and then the other 911 caller, the person, she ended up being a non-factor at all because her statement was, no, I never saw anyone drive a car. I saw only the domestic disturbance. So they didn't end up calling everybody. And that's sort of the key. But again, my main goal was to, for my cross-examination was to treat it like a normal DUI case, fight it as if I would any other case, but make sure that I highlight each with each witness that they never saw him drive. And so that was sort of my my cross-examination goals for each witness. Who was their most significant witness? Who who do they spend the most time with? And and what points do you think that they were really trying to elicit into the record to be able to make their argument? So really, I think that they had two witnesses who were their their main witnesses, uh, and they bookended the trial with them. So they started the trial with the investigating officer. And this could not have gone better for me at all. And I think that to give a little background on it, as I mentioned, this is the officer who initially went to the car, and he said that he was there for about 15 minutes. Now, he never put on his body-worn camera in that point. And I don't know that that made a huge difference, but I was able to elicit that on cross-examination and I was going to use it in closing. But he he had, and then when he went to um, to the other scene, he got there late. And in his report, he wrote that my client said, I crashed my car and ran away. And this is the main thing that he wrote in his police report, you know, along with everything else. And on the body worn camera, that is 100% not what happened. 
So I had this whole cross-examination plan that I was going to impeach him on the fact that, you know, I was going to play the body-worn camera and show that my client from the beginning never said that to anyone. He said the exact opposite and that the, the officer wrote the opposite in his report. The first thing the district attorney did was get out in front of that. So basically, other than what is your, you know, occupation and how long have you been in that job? She had him correcting his report. And she said, did you once write this? Yes, I did. And have you had a chance to watch your body worn camera back? Yes, I did. And is there anything that was important to you? And he basically said, I initially wrote that I, that client said I drove. And I now see that that isn't the case. He never said that. So right off the bat, I'm already like, okay, well, clearly this guy messed up in his report. There were several other places where he messed up in his report. For instance, he said that he called the reporting party, the 911 caller, and she and talked to her. And the district attorney said, do you remember her name? And he had to look through his report and he came up with the wrong name. He came up with my client's girlfriend and the district attorney was like, no, no, are you sure? And he was like, okay, I don't remember her name. And he never put, he put that he spoke to her, but he never put her name. He never put her number. He didn't get an actual statement from her. So that was another thing I was able to bring out. Uh, Or actually, I didn't even have to. I I highlighted it later. Um, But the key, literally and figuratively, was the key to the car. The officer testified that he saw next to my client, when my client was found, he had no shirt on, but there was a black t-shirt next to him. And the officer said that he found a black t-shirt and a fob to a Mercedes Benz. And when the district attorney was going through the body worn with him, she had stills and you can see the, um, you can see the t-shirt. But the officer says, oh, well, you can't see the key there, but it was there. And my argument was that my client never had his key on him that day. And well, that was going to be my argument. And again, the district attorney elicited the fact that you cannot see the key where he says that he saw the key. So we went, you know, on cross-examination, we went through it and I was able to play for the officer a portion of the body-worn camera. After that still where he says, oh, you know, the key's there somewhere. You just can't see it in this picture. And I played the body worn camera for him while he's searching my client. And, you know, I asked, I laid the phone. I was like, this is after you saw the key. Yes. This is after you decided to arrest my client. Yes. And you decided that you wanted to arrest him based on all of these factors. Yes. One of which was that you already saw the key. Yes. And then I said, okay, now let's play this. And at the end of searching him, The last thing he says to my client is, dude, where are your keys? And client says, I don't have my keys. I didn't drive my car. And then the body worn cuts off. So that was obviously a very helpful thing on cross-examination, I thought. And then the district attorney got laid out to dry by the officer because she tried to rehabilitate this. And she said, why would you ask that question if you already knew the answer? And the officer stared at her for 20 seconds and said, I don't know why I would ask that. And the DA tried to tried to say something like, well, sometimes you ask questions that you know the answer to because you want to see how they respond. 
And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course I do that sometimes. That that's fucking great. And because you know what's funny about that is that goes back to her opening where she said, I don't know what my witnesses are going to say. <laughs> apparently it applied more than just the, the to the two females. So that's super ironic and, and hilarious. But I also wanted to draw your attention back to your opportunity to cross examine the officer and with regards to this impeachment moment, you know, they always try to think just because that they addressed it on uh, direct that that somehow then makes their mistake all fine and dandy. You know, walk us through that, you know, despite them prefacing it uh, during the direct. Was there something that did you end up going making that a big part of your cross or? I didn't make it a huge part because I, I did talk on it. I, I touched on it because I wanted to get out why they write reports and how important it is to be accurate in your report and the reasons why it's important to be accurate in your report. But I, I only touched on it a little bit that he got it wrong because I wanted, I did want to point to that and, and go back to that theme of tunnel vision that he just believed that he heard it because that's what he was expecting to hear because, you know, and so I didn't, I had other places that I really wanted to hammer him on specifically things that he left out of his report. For instance, even if, even if he thought he heard what he said he heard, it would be impossible for him to have not heard clients subsequently say, but I didn't drive. So even the fact that he initially thought he said I did drive, I would put in the fact that he later changed his his words. You could even put that in as I thought client, you know, I thought Mr. So-and-so was lying, but put it in the report. And that it was more, my cross-examination was more on the, the omissions than being incorrect. And obviously I wanted to hit on the, um, the key as well, because that was the strongest evidence. One of the things that I had left out was just a, an almost throwaway objection that we do when the officer talked about the dispatcher telling him to go to the scene. And when he talked about the 911 caller and the conversation that he had with her, both times I objected to hearsay, you know, why did you go to the scene? Because it was a, it was a, a car crash. Well, that's hearsay because you're getting that from somebody else. So I objected to it. And the district attorney immediately as is their way said effect on the listener. Um, which basically means that the statement that there was a car crash was not coming in through the officer as the truth. And that ended up being basically the most important thing to my argument later in the case. Interesting. Yeah. So because especially with DUIs, I mean, oftentimes they use the bystanders to kind of set the scene. But because DUIs are inherently circumstantial evidence, just because no one can directly see what someone's blood alcohol content is as a lot of the times that component of the case really relies on officers testimonies so to be able to highlight a lack of credibility with this officer had to have a huge implication on the case and so I want you to just take us into your uh, cross-examinations and highlight for us what you were really focusing on and ultimately what points you were able to elicit during your cross-examinations they allowed you to make the winning argument in the case well well, so the key was the key was very important. That was what I really wanted to to get out because you can't see the key. 
And he asked my client where his key was. And my client was either going to say if he took the stand or I was going to say in closing that he didn't have the key because he didn't drive the vehicle. Um, And I sort of laid some of the groundwork with this for the officer not having his body worn on when he initially went out to the scene. So, you know, he said he saw the key on the ground. How do I know he didn't see it on the ground when he got to the vehicle that had just been allegedly crashed and someone fled? How do we know that he didn't pick it up there and just think that he saw it next to my client? We don't know because he didn't wear his body worn camera. So I, the, some of my main points were when he had his body worn camera activated and more importantly, when he didn't have his body worn camera activated, when he said he saw the key, if we can't see it on that camera and why he asked my client, where's your key after having searched him and taken a bunch of things out of his pocket, if he already had the key in evidence. And I also, I also don't think I got a chance to hear or even ask, because uh, I know that you were a- attacking both the fact that this was a no drive, but uh, presumably also the fact that they had couldn't meet their burden with regards to the uh, unlawful BAC. What was the uh, alleged blood alcohol content in the case? So actually, I should have I should have mentioned earlier that not only was there a special allegation that he had a prior, there was also a special allegation that his blood alcohol content was a but above a 0.15 because the blood test came back at a 0.18. Got it. Okay. And but again, there's always that timetable that plays a huge role in DUIs as to, you know, when was his the suspect's last drink, what when the time of the collision, when was the blood test ultimately done? Because the statutory language is that they were under the influence specifically at the time of driving, which is very important in these kind of allegations. Right. And I think that that's a good segue to the next witness. <laughs> Perfect. So the the next person that they that they called after the officer. And basically my recross of the officer was officer. You never saw my client drive the vehicle. No, I didn't. And then I sat down. So then they called client's girlfriend and her testimony was basically supposed to show a timeline of drinking because they need to lay that foundation for when they give um, hypothetical questions to their criminalist later in the trial. So they, they lay facts that the district attorney can later argue um, and ask hypotheticals to the criminalist. She wasn't really able to give them that. But for me, the main thing that I wanted to get out was she was with him the whole day and she never saw him drive. So on the date of the incident, she spoke to two different officers and she made a couple of statements. And the most damning for me, I think the district attorney potentially didn't even think was damning because she initially said that earlier in the morning, now the driving, the alleged driving in this case happened at around 11 a.m. The girlfriend initially said that sometime around 8.30 in the morning, he drove to go pick up his daughter. And then when, when she laid a timeline down for the officer, she said, we have not drank, had anything to drink today, but we drank a lot last night at a party at a friend's house. So, you know, I knew that their argument was going to be that he hasn't had a drink since last night. So obviously, as you alluded to earlier, Lucas, the um, the BAC must have been falling, not rising because he hadn't had a, a recent drink. So she had subsequently changed that he never left that morning that someone dropped off the daughter. So my fear 
was that they were going to try to impeach her saying, well, you initially said he drove earlier and now you're saying that he didn't, you're just lying to protect him. And the reason why that would be relevant is because that's more evidence, circumstantial as it is, that he drove the car at some point on that day. If they have two times of driving, then they have more of an argument that he was driving the vehicle. I want to get to the other witness that you talked about with the ID issue, but also leave you some time to explain um, the argument that uh, resolved the case. But you had talked about um, how the the lady originally told the, the DAI, the DA investigator, that she wasn't able to recognize the person driving the car. How did that ultimately unfold during the trial? So that was the key. She didn't testify. And so I'll, I'll wrap up the, the other witnesses just quickly. So basically I was able, I actually had an intern cross-examine the girlfriend and just harp on the fact that you never saw him drive. You never saw his car move. He never told you he crashed his car and he didn't look like he was fleeing. Uh, and all of that came out on cross-examination. With, the, with his baby's mother, she said, he came over to my house to give me some soup. He, you know, got in an argument with my parents because she, you know, she personal reasons. Um, and then he left through the pedestrian gate. And so I, we nailed that down. He left through the pedestrian gate. He didn't get in his car and drive. Um, she also saw the officers later and they never took her statement. So that was another place where I was going to point out that the officers didn't do their job. But again, she never saw him drive. So then it was just the criminalist. And the witness that they never called. And, and then the prosecution rest their case. Yeah. So basically they, after we came back after lunch and she said, I asked her, I asked the district attorney a question about the, um, the 911 caller. And she said, no, I'm going to rest after I talked to the criminalist and the light bulb started going off in my head because I knew the state of the evidence at that point. And you know, I, I crossed the criminalist again, just doing my due diligence on the BAC and treating it like a real, like a, a standard DUI and perhaps maybe a little bit getting the district attorney to think about, you know, the, the element of, of the blood test, which really wasn't an, an issue. I wrote to my client, none of this matters to our case. I just want to, you know, I just want to go through it. Throw some spaghetti on the wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then and then after the criminalist got off the stand, the district attorney rested. So then I, I want to take an opportunity and I'll hopefully provide some a little bit of education is that uh, this part of the trial is where this magic of magic Mike, his case actually uh, occurs. And so there's this window uh, that after the prosecution rests and before the defense start their case in chief, that in California, it's pursuant to Penal Code uh, 1118, uh, but I think universally it's often referred to uh, a directed verdict. And what that is, is it's an opportunity for the defense to make a motion to the judge that is basically saying, even giving the prosecution the benefit of the doubt— that the evidence that has been elicited during their case in chief is not enough to sustain a conviction before a reasonable jury. And therefore, the case should just end here because the evidence isn't that strong. 
Now, in my time as practicing, uh, which has been just over five years, I have never heard of one of these granted. Occasionally, you'll hear maybe one or two counts that maybe get dismissed off of a complaint. And I actually take that back. In my first trial, I had one of my counts, 1118. But um, they're normally some of the throwaway charges that are often, in my opinion, added to a complaint just to kind of help facilitate negotiations because they'll then they can say we'll dismiss the balance in in light of the plea and so mike why don't you take us into the 1118 what was the argument and and how did it go right so it was it was again it was one of those moments where it was like okay don't f this up um because when the district attorney told the judge that she was going to rest the judge called us to sidebar and was like okay madam prosecutor, you surprised me. I thought you had another witness. She said, I decided I'm not going to call. She, you know, she asked me, are you going to put on any evidence? I said, your honor, I'm going to speak with my client if he wants to testify. But before we do, I'd like to make a motion outside of the ears of, of the jury. So I, I, I guess the judge didn't know what I meant by that, because what she ended up doing was having the district attorney rest and then asking me, if I rested and I said, your honor, I do have that motion to make, but the defense is planning to rest. Um, so she sent the jurors home. It was the end of the day. Uh, we were going to close in the morning. So she sent them home. And then right after that, I said, your honor, I am moving pursuant to penal code 1118.1 um, for a directed verdict, a dismissal in this case, because I don't think the district attorney met their burden to the first element, which is that my client drove the vehicle. And I gave all of my reasons why um, the, none of the women in the case saw him drive. The officer never saw him drive. The 911 caller never came to trial. And, you know, so I, I made my record and then the judge turned to the district attorney. And this is where that, that uh, objection was key because she said, Madam prosecutor, considering the fact that the statement of the 911 caller and of the dispatcher came in only for its effect on the listener and not for the truth of the matter stated, what is your argument? And then the, the DA, you know, asked her to deny my motion and basically just went through a summation of all of the evidence of the case, including talking about what the criminal has said and his, you know, my client's demeanor and things like that. Um, and the judge was like, okay, I want to, focus you on what I believe Mike's argument is, which is, which is just the driving. And then I took the opportunity to, you know, sort of pile on a little bit and say, yes, that is my argument, your honor, and blah, 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 blah. And, and the district attorney said, no, nothing further, your honor. And some of the, some of the circumstantial evidence that she had argued was that the officer said that the damage looked fresh. There was, um, there was some, you know, fiberglass or, you know, whatever else the car is made out of plastic on the ground next to the vehicle. It was parked in a red zone, although the, the officer said it looked like it had been parallel parked. You know, it wasn't left in the middle of the street, essentially. And he said that the hood was warm to the touch. The judge basically said, I, I don't think any of that sustains what the standard is, which is substantial evidence that the element had, could be met, that the car had been driven. She said the car could have been parked there and a bike drove by and hit the, hit the front of the car. Um, it was 
the middle of the day in, in San Diego. The fact that the hood is warm does not mean that the car has been recently driven. Holy shit. So it was even, it was not only did they not prove that client drove the car, but they didn't even prove that the car dr- was driven. Right. And that was, wow. that was why I think it was, it was key that the district attorney, rather than fighting me on my hearsay objection, just defaulted to effect on the listener. Mm-hmm. Because then had she fought me, maybe she would have won and the hearsay could have been let in. Uh-huh. Because once she got it in as the exception, she's like, oh, you can, you know, it's deaf ears are going to be able to argue it. So kudos to that judge for for holding it to its true purpose of effect and not truth. So well done. Yeah. And so then what was the final ruling of the judge? So the judge said, I'm going to I'm going to grant the motion on pursuant to Penal Code 1118.1. I'm going to enter an acquittal on behalf of your client. Uh, and this case is dismissed. Let's go. Mike, dude, that is such a, a fantastic moment in, in a real testament as to why we fight these fights, why we swing for the fences even when the deck is stacked against us. And, and that is a fantastic and terrific outcome. Thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and insight into that trial breakdown. You know, we can't let you go before we ask our notorious question of all of our guests here on members of the jury. And, you know, this trial in and of itself is a great answer. But, you know, in general, what's the significance of taking matters to the box? Yeah, so I love this question. In, in our criminal system, all too often, the overbearing arm of uh, the government just it quickly moves people like our clients through without really a second care. The courts, the district attorneys, the police are well-established and powerful entities that work together to just punish people uh, without really taking the step back to see what's really going on. So regardless of how our clients are situated within the system, uh, the system and society really, they rarely want to hear or listen to the criminally accused. And that's why taking it to the box is so important because for those few days, my client, uh, they can have their side of the story heard and they, they have someone who's willing to fight um, for them. And I specifically wanted to thank my client in this case, because as I mentioned, he had a pretty good offer on the table, but he was sure of what happened. He was strong in his convictions and he was confident enough in me to trust me to take it to the box for him. And I'm just so grateful that I was able to get him this win. We love that, Mike. That That's such an amazing uh, story. And it all ties together, you know, that answer relating back to, you know, how you highlighted in the prosecution's opening that, you know, they only want to call a client defendant. They want to try to dehumanize our clients as much as possible. And it is our duty and our honor to give them a voice even though they're supposed to be voiceless and to give them a name when they're supposed to be dehumanized. And and you just got a fantastic result for your client. Kudos to you. Kudos to him. Thank you so much for coming to the box and sharing your story. And we hope to hear from you again someday. Well, members of the jury, that's our show. And I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at
tempestofthedrearypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.